Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Mary Gaucher is a folk singer-songwriter whose songs have quite literally saved her life. Born a bastard child in New Orleans To a woman I have never seen Don't know if she ever held me All I know is that she let go of me Writing music didn't come easily to Gaucher. She began abusing drugs and alcohol as a young girl growing up in Louisiana. After years of struggling with addiction, Gaucher got clean at age 27 after getting arrested for a DUI. She picked up a dusty old guitar not long after and began to frequent open mics around Boston, where she eventually found the community and connection she craved. Mary Gaucher released her debut album, Dixie Kitchen, in 1997. She moved to Nashville not long after and has since become known for her ability to write vivid, literary-style lyrics that pull from her past trauma, loss, and heartbreak. Early this year, Gaucher published the book Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting, which documents her process and inspiration. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlum talks to Mary Gaucher about how the same determination that once drove her to drink now powers her songwriting. She also talks about how conversations with young U.S. veterans inspired her Grammy-nominated album, Rifles and Rosary Beads. And Gaucher recalls seeing one particularly moving open mic performance that inspired her to become the artist she is today. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Mary Gaucher. Your great book, Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting, it is a great guide to songwriting. However, when you flip it open and you go to the epigraph, I'm going to read the epigraph. So the epigraph is from the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. I thought, uh, way to take the pressure off there. I interpret it as meaning is that music and song is this opportunity to bring forth what's very hard to articulate any other way. Uh, And a lot of these things are deeply embedded in trauma. Uh, And for me, uh, I've used music and song to move trauma through my cells and, and out of my body. If we carry our trauma 
without working through our trauma, we find often that it gets heavier, not lighter. Mm. And so I see that passage as hopeful. You didn't come to songwriting the way a lot of people I interview do. Tell me a little bit about when songwriting really started for you. Yeah, I didn't start writing songs uh, until my 30s. I went to chef school and trained uh, to be a better cook uh, while I was in the restaurant business. I had found some backers to open a place in Boston and then another place in Boston. I got sober when I was 27 after getting arrested for drunk driving uh, opening night at the second restaurant. And after I got sober, I finished chef school and I started to go to open mics, and it started with one of my waitresses at the restaurant. I had all this time on my hands after I got sober. I didn't, it felt like a day was 40 years long. But wait a second, you were running two restaurants. Yeah, but still. Drinking and drugs took a lot of time, is what you're telling it me. It took, it was the way I completed my day. Mm-hmm. And without that completion ritual, I needed a way to complete my day. And I was brought to an open mic, and it was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to I want to write a song and get on that stage and play here. It was at Club Passim in Harvard Square. Mm-hmm. And so I had an old guitar that I'd been traveling around with uh, for years, but it was dusty and old, and the strings were rusty, and I needed to change the strings and rebuild calluses and, like, put put it in my hands and, and find my way to chords again. And it was a homecoming of sorts, and I, I took to it really passionately. And uh, what happened was, I'm, you know, I'm an addict, so I went at open mics like an addict would. And what I found there uh, was kind of what I was looking for all along with, with drugs and alcohol, which is community and connection. Hanging out with other songwriters and artists and performance poets and just a bunch of wackos and misfits and beautiful, crazy people. I found my people. I found community. And I wasn't drunk, so I connected in a way that didn't disappear the next morning. I was really rebuilding my life. And uh, music and song became the taproot, I think, to my sobriety and recovery and and to my life. And, And here we are 31 years later, and it still is. So tell me, there are people, a lot of people probably listening, that have dusty guitars at home who can Hmm. play a few chords. Where did you start with writing a song? That first day you said, okay, I'm going to do, do you remember that first day when it was like, huh? Kind of. I didn't have any idea what I was doing or how to do it, or, but I'd seen a room full of people do it. And I started going to that open mic every week and I watched... You know, nervous people, people who really weren't very good at it, people who were just getting started, people who were older than me, which was great relief to me because I felt old at at 31, 32, however old I was there. For me, it was a matter of finding a melody and some words and a handful of chords that my hand could shape and saying something. And it took me quite a while to figure out what it is I wanted to be saying. I finally made up nine or ten songs, and I made a little demo record. When I look back on that, I think, well, you know, I'm imitating my heroes like like most people in the beginning. In retrospect, if you listen to that first Bob Dylan record, he's definitely imitating his heroes, from Dave Von Ronk to Ramblin' Jack Elliott to Woody Guthrie. There's one original Dylan song on that first record, and you can see the promise that, that uh, he has fulfilled and then some. The beginning is, I think, naturally uh, about trying to figure out what you're supposed to be talking about and what you're supposed to sound like. It's interesting because, you know, we're in Nashville. In fact, we're along Music Row where a lot of people, you know, they really learned not by figuring out what they had to say, but by just the craft of it. Like, I got to write a song because this is how I make a living and I'm going to try and sell it to to somebody. You, right. You that, really didn't go through that. For no. you, it was it was this, the subject had to come. Yeah, well, two things. One, I, I didn't have to make a living at it. I owned two restaurants, mm-hmm. and I made a good living. So it wasn't about money for me. And the other thing is I never played in covers bands. I didn't have a large vocabulary musically. Really, GCD, 
E-A-B. I mean, there's just that one, four, five chord progression over and over again and to get fancy, throw a minor in. Have you pushed yourself since then? Because artists like, like Paul Simon, particularly in the 70s, when he was suddenly by himself, he learned music theory because he thought, I, I just don't have enough chords for what I want to do. Has that been a kind of lifetime thing for you too? No. I can work within my limitations and uh, musically still continue to find new melodies to wrap around where I really want to go that challenges me uh, the most is lyrically to places I haven't been before. Mm -hmm. I want to I articulate what I'm going through. The challenge for me is to not repeat myself. Uh, and some people find that, that deepening their knowledge of music helps them to do that. Uh, for me, deepening my knowledge of myself and the world and spirituality and faith and, and particularly love, that is a full-time job for me uh, as someone who has uh, uh, dealt with uh, a deep-seated sense of unworthiness for most of my life. Um, learning how to love and be loved, man, that, that, you know, I'll be doing that for whatever time I have left is, is probably not enough to get real good at it. It's going to take another lifetime probably. Let me ask you when you say lyrics, finding the right words. Like how do you find these words? Are, are, you, the, are you the kind of I've always got a notebook with me or are you the kind of sit down every day type? I'm on the computers now. Really? Yeah. I wrote on uh, legal pads for years and I still have just huge four legal pads worth of edits. Mm-hmm. that I bring sometimes to my workshops when I'm working with songwriters to go, look, this is how much I edited this song. You think you think your first past is, is the one? <laughs> like, this is how much I had to get rid of to get to that. When the computers came along and I started writing on computers, maybe I, I, some things get lost. I don't just delete it. I, it's a long-running document. Yeah, okay. uh, but I do cut and paste and use the laptop uh, as I write these mm-hmm. days, definitely. So you're a, you're a healthy consumer of Amazon cloud services is what you're telling me. you got, <laughs> got a lot of stuff there. Got a lot, got a lot of words. <laughs> what allows you to find those words? I have a thing in my gut that my very first producer, Crit Harmon, identified as the truthometer. And I think if there's anything that, that I could point to that says this is where your talent lies— that would be what I would claim, is I have a truthometer. And, and that truthometer uh, tells me when I'm not there yet. And so finding words is, is not hard. Finding truth is always hard. And that's what I challenge myself to do. And, and the truth I'm referencing is not the facts. It's emotional truth. Mm-hmm. Like really what we're talking about here. I'm always in this state of unknowing when I write. I don't, I don't know, and I'm in a discovery process. What's that process like? It's getting rid of bullshit. Like, that's just not quite true. Or that sounds nice, and you really want to sing it because it, it has a razzle-dazzle, but it's a, it's a half-truth. Sounds good, looks good, presents well at a party, but then you leave and realize nothing was said and nothing moved and nothing really connected. Do all songs begin with a little bit of that for you? Oh, yeah. I have to start with what I call the cocktail party conversation and then work my way into uh, something deeper for me to finish the song. And I have a lot of songs I've started that I didn't finish. I have not finished. Do you think it's because those songs didn't have a truth or because you just couldn't find it at that? I couldn't find it. Hmm. It probably belonged to somebody else somewhere else. It wasn't mine to write. I'm interested, you know, you say you've got a, what did you say, a, tr- a truth meter? Truthometer. Truthometer. You know, the flip side of that, and you, you said this, uh, would be the bullshit detector. Yep. Uh, do you have that for other singers? Do you hear songs and go, nice song, ain't true? All the time. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That really. Yeah, I don't believe you. Even with famous songs? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah I don't believe you. I guess I'm, I'm less interested in what the truth is mm. in, in how they say it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of rock music where, frankly, I don't, I don't have a clue what, what the lyrics are even about. I don't kind of care. That's not where I, I, I tend to put my ears. I want to hear some truth. And, mm. and I'm not asking for facts. Fiction is awesome. 
That's actually a great way to get to the truth. What I mean is I want to believe the singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is wrapped to me, wrapped around emotional truth. And so uh, I think that there's a, a, a certain amount of vulnerability involved, a certain amount of taking a risk that's involved. And those truths tend to be universal and they tend to follow us through time. The song you guys warmed up on, which was The War After the War, now I know you co wrote that um, with people, I believe, whose spouses were. Yeah, military spouses and military uh, spouses. Beth Nielsen Chapman. And, uh, you know, that line, there are landmines in the living room, eggshells on the floor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, those are just great lines. That's what those are. Uh, and you've got those throughout your song. Is that something, do you, do you hear little phrases and go, oh, that, that works? Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm looking for when I write, is, mm-hmm. is a, a visual that makes uh, you see it and then feel it. Tell me the story about the guy you saw on an open mic night. It's a story in your book, and I thought it was so instructive. Yeah, I call it the farmer in the hat story. Uh, when I was uh, about a year or two into open mics, just very much at the beginning of learning how to write songs and, and uh, play them on stage, which was, for me, terrifying for quite a while. Uh, I just had serious stage fright and and a sense of, um, what am I doing up here? Every time I got up there, I was like, oh, my God. Well, and the first time you didn't play at all, right? The first time I couldn't even get a word out. Mm -mm. I just completely failed. But um, I I was brought to an open mic where it went for hours and hours and hours because it was a very popular open mic in western Massachusetts at the old Vienna Coffee House. hundred and something people signed up. If you do the math at five minutes, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of people and a lot of hours. And so three, four hours into this thing, waiting for our turn to play, a lot of people left, but the people that remained were steadfast and waiting for their turn on stage. And this guy gets up, uh, and he's obese. He's in overalls. He's got dirty work boots. He's wearing a a straw hat, uh, and he looks as nervous as I've felt on stage. Um, and uh, when they plug him in to get going, he just immediately starts strumming without finesse, and and uh, those of us left in the audience were like, oh, man, we're going to have to sit through another horrible song being played by somebody who has uh, no stage uh, presence, and uh, he was shaking. Uh, his face went crimson. He was hiding under his hat, and uh, it was not a great start. Uh, but when he got to the chorus, he sang, I got holes I, I can't fill and bills I, I can't pay. I'm going to walk in the water till my hat floats away. And something went across the room. I, I think of it as uh, an emotional electricity. And we all immediately let go of our judgment of this guy. And what I think occurred was empathy which is the most powerful experience uh, I think that art can give us, especially the art of song, is empathy. We're suddenly not only being uh, brought to the feeling of what he's saying that we have had, but we're feeling as if we are him. We become him in that moment. And what happened was we understood instinctively he wasn't joking. He was serious, and I don't know if he was contemplating suicide, but his narrator was, Mm -hmm. and we believed him. And that believing him really, really moved us. When that happened, uh, the room was, was his. He had us. It didn't matter that he was obese. It didn't matter that he was unwashed. It didn't matter he couldn't sing. It didn't matter he couldn't play. And he got a standing ovation from the people of that were in the audience, and that burned itself into my consciousness of what I'm trying to do as a songwriter. I wanted to do what that guy did. I wanted to make people feel it and be unable to not feel it. And that's still my goal. And he gave me a way of, of seeing my job that wasn't contingent on music business values, which is you got to be young, you got to be sexy, you got to sing great, you got to play great, you got to be, uh, no that thing there, if I can do what he did, I know I'll have a career. I know I'll have people who 
will uh, want to hear what I do. Mm-hmm. But he, it was a great song quality, which is it was so visual. Yep. And that is what I talk about a lot is that songs often, uh, in my way of looking at it, are like cinematic moments. There's like little films. You want to bring people into the movie so they can see themselves in your story. Mm-hmm. That's always what I'm trying to do. And then that creates emotion. Can you think of songwriters who, for you, always create those visual pictures? Oh, God, there's so many. The well, Leonard, you, you Leonard, talk about uh, Sam Stone being one of your favorites. John, favorite always, always. No, that would be a good song, but everybody knows there's a hole in Daddy's arm. Where the oh. most, I don't think that song would be nearly as well known. With that, That's the line. That, there's that, a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes. Yeah. Oh, my God, what a visual. My friend Gretchen Peters has a song called On the Bus to St. Cloud, and it's about a, a divorce or a breakup, uh, and uh, she she's, uh, finds herself in a church in St. Cloud, and she weeps in the arms of Jesus for the choice you made. Mm-hmm. That is so much better than you broke my heart and now I'm sad. The recitation of... I'm sad and blue, uh, does nothing. It, it doesn't have the power. And that's just understanding how human empathy gets triggered. Give me a couple examples from your own songwriting where you were consciously or unconsciously thinking of that moment, the till my hat floats away, your, your hat floating away moments. Mm, well, you know, I, I try to get an imagery in every song. I got one uh, moving on through the pain. I'm waiting on another train. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we all know I'm not really at the train station waiting for another train. It's a metaphor. But the trains always lend themselves uh, to, these, to these songs. Uh, the train is a metaphor for so many things, the comings and goings of everything in human life. That's why there's, I think, never enough train songs. You know, working with the veterans, rifles and rosary beads. You hold on to what you need. You know, I asked the young man I wrote that with, what did you see when you got off that plane? 19 years old, kid from Austin, Texas, gone through basic and find yourself in Fallujah during the surge. He said, well, there was guys holding rifles with white knuckles, and uh, there was guys holding rosary beads and rolling them. He's, he wasn't a Catholic, so he didn't know that that's how you... I was raised Catholic. You pray each bead. Each mm-hmm. bead has a prayer attached. He said they were rolling the beads. And so I just immediately wrote down rifles and rosary beads because that imagery is so strong and followed it up with you hold on to what you need. And then I asked him, well, what was it that you held on to? And there was a long pause, and I knew I had asked a hard question. And he slowly and somewhat hesitantly said, Vicodin. And that came right down into the song, Vicodin, Morphine Dreams, Rifles and Rosary Beats. We'll be right back with more from Mary Gaucher after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com. 
where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with Mary Gaucher and Bruce Sedlam. So how do you put it all together then? Like when do you know that I've got this, I've got the order right, or is it just work? It's work. Yeah. And hours and hours and hours. There's a sense of rightness when it's really starting to feel done. You know, usually I'll sleep on it and and check it the next day and see if I still feel that way. And at least 99% of the time, I don't. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a gut feeling and very hard to articulate. I was amazed that it took you two years to write I Drink. Right about two years. Yeah, I had to get I had to get that bridge, and boy, that bridge took forever. The character had to say something in that bridge so that we knew the song wasn't comical and that we knew that that character was in trouble. And it took me a while writing that song that I, before I realized the character wasn't me. Even though it is me, it's not me. Mm-hmm. And what I had to do was get everything out that well, for, didn't belong. For example, the, the first verse was about my father, mm-hmm. but then it was just he in the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. Like you took, and, and you understand it as, as, the, as the narrator's father. Yeah. But you, you cleared out a lot of stuff from that song. Yeah, I had, to, I had to keep asking, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And if it's not true, then get it out, make space, and try to put something more true in there until everything uh, in it, I could check, yeah, this is true. Which, again, is not a reference to factual, because the song is fiction, but I believe it to be true, uh, in that I believe the narrator. It rings true. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, and we haven't even talked about your music yet, we're talking so much about lyrics, Mm -hmm. is the pause before. Mm -hmm. Would you mind even playing just the chorus, just so people hear what I'm talking about? Yeah. Fish swim, birds fly, daddy's yell, mama's cry, old men sit and think. Was that pause always in that song? Yeah. Yeah? That is so good. Yeah. Yeah, it just makes it. That delay is kills yeah, me. Yeah, it's weird because in some situations it comes off as comical. 
had you heard that in another song, that kind of delay, or it just it just no, fit that song? No, that just seemed to be how it fell in. Uh, like, I figured the the guy would say it in a way that was, again, matter of fact. Look, he, here's what I am, and uh, this is just how it is. He would probably say it a little softer. It wouldn't, he wouldn't go up on I Drink. He would say it a little softer. Fish swim, birds fly, daddy's yell, mama's cry, old men. They sit and think, and yeah, I, but, but, I drink. But you could have filled it in with, you know, I'm the guy that got it drinks, or, you know, you could have filled in all those missing syllables yeah. had you wanted. Right, but then it would have felt as though it would be less matter of fact if you filled it in with a bunch of mumbo jumbo. He's, he just has acceptance of what's happening. Uh, and then you realize in the bridge, wait a minute, he's lying to himself. The song's emotionally complicated because mm-hmm. it is an actually, it's an exploration of alcoholic denial, which is a much deeper uh, form of denial than, than just knowing something uh, to, to not be true, but, but insisting that it is. Yeah, alcoholic denial is you you have no idea of uh, the severity of your situation. You really don't know. When he says, I, I know what I am and I don't give a damn, the audience goes, oh, he's in trouble and he doesn't really know how bad it is. You said that phrase, I don't give a damn, is what, that was the key to the song for you? Yep, that was the key to the song. Mm. It was a two-year song. It, <laughs> when, in, when in that two years did you go, wait a second... Well, I think I remember something happened. A parallel thing happened where uh, I had a manager. I was, over time, trusting them less and less. I had evidence that my trust might have been misplaced in this guy. And he kept saying, hey, Mary, look, trust me. I'm a good guy. And somewhere along the way, I went, wait a minute. I know zero good guys who say that shit. Well, I'm going to stop saying that. <laughs> Bruce, don't tell people you're a good guy. Okay. And, and I realized, Nobody else oh, is going to tell you that. it's the unreliable narrator thing. It's like, I know what I am. I don't give a damn. And everybody who hears an alcoholic say that says to themselves, I don't believe you. Yeah. Because when you shout, I don't give a damn, it means you do. What interested me is, is the first song you felt was your own was a song that was not in your voice. And it was uh, Goddamn HIV. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, that was the song that was written from the perspective of a young man with the virus in the early 90s who knew that he was probably going to die. And while it was his voice, it was actually the first experience I had of my writer's voice. That was my voice. I was speaking in first person from behind his eyes, but everything about it was me. I think that, that that is really an interesting thing to talk about is writer's voice. Mm-hmm. I think writer's voice can come through characters. Tooling apart who's the writer and who's the character is always interesting. You know, the old saying that all biography is fiction and all fiction is biography. There's a lot of me in that guy. I talk about how that song was influenced by all my heroes, but they wouldn't have written it. That one was for me to write. Interesting. Like, so you're thinking of Dylan or other people or Woody Guthrie, but they yeah. wouldn't have written it. No, not first person. I couldn't imagine Steve Earle saying, I've been a queer since the day I was born. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say that because Michael needed to say that, the character. Right. You know, my name is Michael Joe Alexandria. I've been a queer since the day I was born. Mm-hmm. And it's just unapologetic. As a matter of fact, like, let's just get this on the table so that you can self-select the hell out of here if that's what you feel as though you need to do. And if you want to stay around for the rest of the story, I'm here to tell it to you. This is interesting because, you know, the two things that work for me, and one is the political part of the song. I, I guess it's the middle eight. It's just a, it's just a little couplet. I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's, um, I don't know what it all means. I don't think... It, it means, means what, what it, it seems. seems. Yep. And the other part is the the last verse where he goes back and remembering being scared as a kid mm-hmm. and his mother would turn on the light. Mm-hmm. When that, did that come to you when you were writing That's intentional. Song? I wanted people to envision themselves in the story. When I had Michael Joe reflect back on him being a boy, 
being scared at night, and his mama would come and turn on the light. I want every mama and daddy who heard that song to imagine their child uh, crying and going to the room and picking them up and saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's just a dream. Uh, because back then, gay men with, with AIDS were being, were being dehumanized. They were being treated as disposable, as pariahs. I, I had a friend with the virus who ended up in the Baton Rouge General Hospital with crime scene tape on his door. They wouldn't even put the meals in the room. His parents didn't even go visit him. The hope with that, with that couplet was that people could envision, wow, this could happen to my kid. Yeah, I didn't want to go for the anger. I wanted to go for, for the empathy. Paul Simon uh, said to us that a lot of his songs start out angry and he writes them until the anger's gone. I really relate to that. Really? You start with anger? I don't think anger's the, uh, I think there's a deeper emotion under anger and it's almost always hurt or fear. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say I don't like angry songs, but I'm trying to go underneath a lot of what m- might make me angry at first and see what, what's underneath that. And almost always it's fear or or hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it hurt me that, that my friend Joey was treated like that at the hospital. And that was uh, painful. Like I was angry, but underneath it was more like, gosh, you know, I want people not to do this. And being angry about it's not going to change that. Maybe make, it, make them feel it like it could happen to, them, to their own kids. Because, of course, it could. Do you ever have writer's block? Oh, yeah. What's that? How do you work through that? I just wait it out. Oh, really? Does it always come back? Life will deliver something, that, and, and that brings me back. I don't force myself to the page or to the guitar. I feel it, and it comes back. I don't panic. I, I definitely am writing less than I used to. I don't feel as though I have a lot to prove anymore. The songs still come, and every couple years I'll keep making records. Uh, that's interesting, but you don't, so you don't worry so much if you're, if, you're, if you're away from the guitar for three weeks, say. Oh, that's common. Yeah? Yeah. So you're not the, I got to sit down every day with. I used to be. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of catching up to do because I started late. Yeah. But, you know, 10 records in, I'm kind of like, hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't write for a publisher with, with a, you know, you have to write 21 songs a year to keep your publishing deal. I don't have any of that hanging over me. So I write when I have something to say. When you wrote, I think, Sweet Words, for a long time you thought you were describing the other person mm-hmm. or relationship. And you seem to have a lot of those kind of clarifying moments. Yeah. You realize you're describing yourself. Yeah. And the song flipped for you. The aha moment. Mm-hmm. That's what you want. That's why it's so connected to purpose for me, because the song always teaches me. The song is the teacher. I'm mm-hmm. the student, always. It doesn't make sense. It seems paradoxical. Yes, I'm writing it, but it's also writing me. There's that famous uh, Flannery O'Connor quote. It goes something like, I write so I can read it, so I can make sense of what I think. Mm-hmm. Well, songs, I write so I can sing it, so I can make sense of what I feel. We've talked about a lot of songs. Is there one you like to play to maybe demonstrate some of the things we've talked about? Well, this is a new song. I'd love to hear a new song. May eternity hold you In the hollow of her hand A soft wind enfold you as you travel distant lands. May the moon and stars delight you as the daylight dims. To the morning sun warms your face Till I see you again May you lay down your struggle Beneath a silver sky 
a summer rain inside your dreams sang a lullaby. May there be no more sorrow, no more pain. May you sleep inside the stillness of the night till I see you again. Feel alone. May you reunite with family and friends. May they walk you home. May love embrace you in a dance that never ends. May you rest in gentle arms till I see you again. May you rest in gentle arms till I see you. That's Mary Gaucher singing Till I See You Again from her upcoming album. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snagajob is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer... Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one 
is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Mary Gaucher. You are a storyteller. You're like John Prine, that, that you know, the sentences tend to connect. Mm. Uh, but in a couple songs, you've done this where you just use phrases. Uh, and one of my favorites is, uh, is Mama Here, Mama Gone. It's just, it's almost like, a, like David Byrne writes songs that way. He just, they're just phrases he writes and he strings together. Do you remember writing that? How did you choose that for that song? Whew, that was a tough one. That record cycle, uh, the songs of the foundling, uh, that took quite a while to execute. Uh, I don't have a great memory of writing that one. I know that the song was definitely in, inspired by the John Lennon song, Mother. What was inspirational about that song for you? His absolute vulnerability. That, that song, if you really listen to it, that's a frightening song. It's an extremely unlikely single for a post-Beatles record from John Lennon. Mm-hmm. He, he was extremely vulnerable in that song. And if you read the lyric, it's hard not to cry. Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I mean, that's brutal. That's painful. Um, and I just got to tell you goodbye. And then in the end, he's screaming, Mama, don't go. Daddy, come home. That little person inside him. It's, it's traumatizing what happened to him as a boy. And and um, he ended up in that therapy with Janoff trying to scream it out. Um, and that showed me the way in, in my own work around my adoption trauma. I spent my first year in an orphanage uh, and uh, didn't understand I was traumatized at all until I understood in my mid-40s that, oh, wow, this is what drove the addiction. <sighs> That relinquishment, I, I think I'll be dealing with relinquishment my whole life and the experience of being terrified of being abandoned. And it's a goldmine for songs. I've written from that place a lot. So Mama Here, Mama Gone kind of encapsulates it. Like, wait a minute. Where are you? What do you mean? It doesn't make sense that you're never coming back. It, it's from the... The voice of an infant who can't say such things. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's like the, the lack of connection between, it's just their little impressions almost. Yeah, it need to be yeah. real simple. In a way, a baby is, is crying this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is there something wrong with me that I actually prefer John Lennon's song, Julia, to Mother? Because that's also about his mother. Well, Mother's a painful song to listen to. It's a painful song to listen to. Maybe, it's I, not, I, maybe I find it almost a little embarrassing. It's a little too painful for me. It's a lot. I understand what he was doing. He wasn't doing the music business in that song. He was trying not to drown. And I get that. And it's a serious song. Uh, it's not oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da. It is help. And I love that he had the courage to do it. And it's a roadmap for people who want to use songs and music for more than entertainment. There's not a lot of entertainment in that song. But I think that the song is a, a manual to, to articulating things through song 
that need to be said or they could kill you. Back to the beginning of my book, which you Mm -hmm. do not bring forth uh, will kill you. He had to write it, and I deeply respect it, and it gave me permission to do the work I needed to do. Hmm. You've you've mentioned permission a couple times. Even during your career, have you felt, I don't have permission to do that? Do you still feel that with songs? Hmm. I think permission's nice. I think having people come before me and point to what's possible and show me the way is, uh, I think that I'm in I'm in a tradition. Uh, I follow in a tra- inside a tradition. Um, one of the greats, I think, Nancy Griffith. You know, she she uh, I think was a trailblazer in many ways. She she followed behind a lot of men. Texas men. The permission was granted sometimes and permission denied other times. But her work gives young women permission to go places where where they might not have gone before her. And Loretta Lynn's music gave Nancy permission. I mean, think of it in, in country music. There, The women often were singers and the songwriters wrote the songs. But Loretta wrote her own songs. Mm-hmm. And I would Venture to say, Nancy would say, that gave me permission. Like, in a, in a metaphorical way. Like, like, oh, we can do this. Uh, are there other songwriters that you feel gave you permission? You mentioned John Prine, John Lennon. Oh, yeah, John Prine, John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Woody. Gosh, yeah, Woody and uh, Bruce and Leonard and Patti Smith and... Lucinda, Steve Earle still is is writing at the top of his game. Um, you know, I think something really happened when the Nobel Committee gave Dylan the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, I know one thing that happened is it made a lot of writers, authors, very angry. Mm-hmm. But it also, I think, acknowledged that songwriting can be literature. I would argue maybe there needs to be a category for songwriting mm-hmm. because songwriters can beat, can beat authors hands down over and over because we have melody, and mm-hmm. melody is a highway to the heart. Uh, but I think that uh, there's a permission in that, that, yeah, yeah, right at a very high level, uh, it is, it is uh, um, a form of literature. Uh, you, you actually had a great quote in your book about songs, which I wrote down, that songs were the most distilled of the arts, the most clarified, that's your cooking background right mm-hmm. there, accessible and democratic. I think you don't need a college education to go to a show and listen to music. Mm-hmm. Whereas walking in an art museum is a little intimidating. But with Music Man, you just put your money down and go to the show. And you get it because you feel it. Mm-hmm. It's always a little alarming when you go to a show and you realize how many other people are reacting to the song because <laughs> you thought it was yours, and it's everybody's thing. Yeah. You mentioned Lucinda Williams, and yeah. you, you talk about taking a trick from her, yeah. from her song, Change the Locks. Yeah. In, I think it's Mercy Now. Mercy Now, yeah. yeah tell, me about, tell me about that. Yeah, I was stuck with Mercy Now, and I didn't know where to go from my own uh, sort of uh, life. How did I, how do I move this song forward? I'm talking about my father, I'm talking about my brother. I'm trying to work in my mother and my sister, and they just kept bucking out. It's like they don't really belong here, and I didn't quite know where to go. So I went to lunch, and I thought, (laughs) wait a minute. Lou has this song, Change the Locks. And I I had my laptop with me, so I I look at it, and I'm like, oh, man, her camera lens is on a dolly. And it it gets surreal towards the end. She's going to change the name of the town. Uh, she starts, I'm going to change the locks on the door so you can't come here anymore. And the next thing you know, she's changing the tracks on the train in the name of the town. And I realized that camera lens backs up further and further. And the uh, perspective becomes wider and wider. It's like, that's what I need to do. And so I went from my father and brother to my church, my country, uh, to, to all of life, every living thing, and then everyone. The camera's on a dolly, it backs up, and it worked. And I want to thank Lucinda Williams for that, who probably got that technique from Robert Johnson or some bluesman, because she's an expert on the blues. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So it's the same shot. You're talking about just broadening it out. Yeah, the same, the same shot, getting wider and wider. Uh, you use another technique, and it does come out of folk music, which is you'll repeat a single line. You don't do it a lot, but you do it beautifully in The Orphan King which is just a series of 
misfortunes that that the orphan goes through. And then I think every does every line finish with Hail, hail the orphan king. Yeah, yeah. It still ends, but it, it ends with. Uh, but I still believe in love. I still believe in love. Yeah, and I think in that song I was trying to convince myself. Oh, that's the the need for repetition was because I was trying to really convince myself. Yeah, I think that was the motive for doing it, and I knew that it was uh, it was needed. The record's so intense, and the songs are so laced with trauma, like mother. Like, it's like, this is almost unlistenable. We need something that ends this thing uh, with faith. Mm-hmm. And so what am I going to believe in? Well, I'm going to believe in love, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked a lot about your techniques, which I'm fascinated by because mm-hmm. I love that stuff. The healing power, I mean, you, when you say saved by a song, that's the title of your book. You mean that. Yes, Literally. Yeah. Where would you have been if you didn't go to that open mic night? I don't know. I don't know. I know this, that when you get sober, it becomes harder and harder to stay sober if you don't have purpose. You got to get sober and then find purpose. You had two restaurants. You were successful. Money didn't do it. And Jambalaya didn't do it. My purpose wasn't ever going to be restaurateur. I wasn't emotionally. It didn't go deep enough for me. Uh, for a lot of people, it's it's their purpose, and they have a great life owning, running restaurants, and that's what they were put here to do. And for me, it, it just wasn't going to be. It didn't it didn't feel deep enough for me. Uh, also, I didn't like having a big, large staff that that I had to take care of. I wasn't a great boss, and I, I I'm still not a great boss, and and I really. And better with fewer people. Uh, so I like the independence uh, and the constant challenge of being a troubadour. And always, always, always the blank page. It's not like this job ever gets done. My recovery is deeply attached to writing songs and, and to writing. And that is my purpose. My purpose is to tell stories and sing to people and make uh, these connections. And so Saved by a Song, I, I think also the music has been therapeutic for me, quite frankly. It's given me ways to work through really hard and complex trauma and emotion. It's a great book. Everybody read it from the start. Yeah, thank it's you It's just been wonderful. This. Thanks to Mary Gaucher for graciously talking us through her songwriting technique and inspiration. You can check out a playlist of all the songs mentioned in this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, 
and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.